Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. In the introduction of my book, When God Walked Alone, I talk about why I decided to write the book in the first place. It had to do with some interviews that I had with some of the staff here at the church. In my position as senior pastor, I usually am part of the interview process for senior members of the staff or pastoral staff. And the goal of my interview is to do what I would call a doctrinal audit to try to determine whether or not what they believe is consistent with what we believe as a church and our practices. Now, sometimes it's not always about a right and wrong answer. Uh, but there has to be an alignment. For example, if, if someone I'm interviewing does not believe that you should use drums in a worship service, then they probably are not ones that we should have here at the church. When discussing beliefs about things with uh, various people, one of the questions that I asked time and time again was, how would you explain to someone else how they get right with God? In other words, how would you explain the gospel to someone? And to me, this is one of the most significant questions I could ask. And I was surprised by many of the answers I received because I realized these were, these were most of the time people who had been to Bible college or they had been to seminary, and yet their answers many times to that simple question either lacked clarity or sometimes it was just confusing or maybe even wrong at times. Some of the answers that they would give to this question, how do you get right with God, were answers like this, you need to invite Jesus into your heart, or they say you need to surrender or give your life to Christ, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you need to make a commitment to Jesus, you need to follow Jesus. Now, I like the fact that all of these answers have Jesus as part of the answer, and of course, that's absolutely essential. The heart of our message is a a Savior who died and rose again for us, but are these answers correct? Are they biblical? And if not, why not? Now, I wouldn't have written this book had I had this discussion with each of the candidates, and when we were done, they had not changed their minds, but in each case, they did. They would throw out an answer, and I would kind of challenge the answer with questions. And again, I'm not trying to to, to cause, you know, hardship with them or anything. I realize that people have different perspectives about things but I would challenge some of their answers. And when we were done with the conversation, time and time again, they would come back and say, I've appreciated this conversation. And they changed their perspective about the way they communicated the gospel. For example, if they said something like, I believe you have to commit your life to Jesus, my response would be, well, how committed do you need to be? And if if it's about committing your life to Jesus, what happens if you commit most of your life to Jesus but not all of it? And what if you and your weakness are not able to fulfill your commitment? Is it really about a commitment we make to God or is it about a commitment he made to us? And several of the candidates, when I was done, 
surprised me by saying, you know, whether I get the job or not won't matter. I'm just glad that we have this particular conversation. It's really just changed the way I view this subject. And I realize that if people who are from Bible college or seminary are not answering this question clearly, I realize that that could be a problem with the average person sitting in the congregation as well. Now, why does this matter so much? Well, because as I talked in the first week of this series, our eternal destiny depends on what we believe concerning Christ. It depends on a proper understanding of this gospel message. We looked at Romans 1 verse 16 where the apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And the word salvation just means to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. And the apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this message because it's God's power to save or deliver us from the penalty of our sin to those who believe. To, to those who understand the message and they respond properly to it. They're born again. They're born anew. And what some people don't like, the flip side of this, is that I'm convinced if people do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they do not have eternal life. This is what John was getting at in 1 John 5, 12 and 13. He said, the one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. He's talking about eternal life here. And then John goes on to say why he wrote the book of 1 John. He said, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I mentioned in my book that the word know, according to a scholar by the name of Vincent, doesn't just mean to know a set of facts or to know intellectually. It, needs to, it means to know with conviction. It means to know with settled and absolute knowledge that it's possible for us as Christians to know with clarity where we stand with God. We don't have to question about our eternal destiny. And part of the reason why I want to talk about this subject here today is that when the answers are not really correct, we will not have this assurance. For example, if most of our responses to how you get right with God have to do with what we do for God instead of what God did for us, we will not have assurance. We will always be wondering the question, have I done enough? But if our standing with God is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, that would make the difference. Now, when it comes to the terminology that I heard time and time again from different candidates, what they, what they said usually fell into one of three issues or problems or I'd call them mistakes. Number one, they often use biblical terminology or I'm sorry, biblical terminology like faith, belief, or trust was replaced with other words like commit, follow, or give. In other words, the biblical terminology related to salvation, like John 3, 16, God so loved the world, whoever believes in him, for by grace you're saved through faith. You know, those are biblical terms related to how we begin a relationship with God, and those words were often replaced with other words, like commit your life to Christ, follow Christ, or give yourself to him, or give your life to him. So that was the first mistake I think people made. Second, the focus was on what they would do for God instead of what God did for us. I want to say this again. I want to ask this question. If our salvation is based on what we do for God, will we ever have 
an assurance of where we stand. If, if, for example, my standing with God is based on surrendering to him, will I ever know if I'm really going to heaven or not? You know, John wrote, we can know where we stand with God. And the third mistake I think people made is that Bible verses related to discipleship were used to explain salvation. That was kind of the biggest problem that I think people had, is that they used words or phrases related to our responsibility as Christians to be good disciples. They applied that at the front end to what was needed for salvation. Now, Today I want to look at four different expressions, and there were many more that I received, but I just want to focus on four statements, and I want to explain why they are either confusing or maybe incorrect, and then I want to encourage us to again go back to biblical terminology when we're sharing our faith with other people. First one I want to talk about is the phrase, invite Jesus into your heart. People say, you know, the way you get right with God is you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Now, I want to mention right up front that I think that was the terminology that I, I probably personally responded to when I put my faith in Christ. And this is the terminology often used in churches, especially in Sunday school classes with kids. They'll ask people, do you want to invite Jesus Christ into your heart? And I'm grateful for the fact, by the way, that despite the fact I'm talking about terminology that we use and the importance of using the right words or the right terms, I'm thankful that God is really bigger than our presentation, that God is able to, to save us despite that. I know that when I was presented with the gospel, I understood that I was a sinner, that I needed a savior. I understood that Christ died for me. And then when I was told I should invite him into my heart, I understood it was kind of a faith step. And so I realize that that's the case, that God is bigger than our terminology. At the same time, it's important that we be clear. This idea of inviting Jesus into our hearts comes from Revelation 3.20, where John wrote, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Now, it's a wonderful picture here of Jesus standing outside the door waiting for an invitation to come inside. So you say, well, what's the problem with this terminology? Well, Revelation 3.20 was addressed to Christians. They were believers who lived in the city of Laodicea, which is located in modern-day Turkey. These believers in this early church in Laodicea were guilty of doing church without Jesus being inside. And so it was like they were having their fellowship gatherings together. They were enjoying meals together. They were doing church, if I could put it that way. But they didn't have Christ with them. It's like Christ was knocking on the door, wanting to come inside, waiting for them to invite him to be inside. And so this is really a verse that's addressed to Christians. The second issue I have with this is that it's just confusing. I don't know what someone thinks when they're being asked to invite Jesus into their heart. What I know for sure is this is not terminology that we find in the Bible as the thing that leads to salvation. Let's look at a second phrase I often struggle with. Surrender your life to Christ. Or another way that this is put is to give your life to Christ. Now, this past week, a very famous person died. All of you would know who this is. And I was reading what someone wrote about this person. And they said, well, this person is in heaven today because they gave their life to Christ. Now, is that how someone becomes a Christian? By giving their life to Christ? 
This particular terminology is reflected in something I read on a website, and I don't remember who the author was. But they wrote this. They said, Christians are those who have decided to give their lives to Christ. So, to become a Christian is an act of surrender. We offer all that we have been, which is our sins and failures, all that we are, all, which is all that we possess and hold, and all that will be. In other words, our ambitions and destiny, and we give them over to God. Now, is this really how someone becomes a Christian, that you have to give everything you possess, everything that you've had in the past, all that's happened to you, all that's in the present, you're not allowed to hold on to everything, and then you have to give everything in the future? I would suggest that the answer to this is no. If this is how we get right with God, I would argue it is no longer a gift. A gift is something you receive freely. It's not something you earn by giving something back. And in this case, giving our entire lives. Now, on the surface, I realize that this terminology looks kind of right. Because some of you are thinking, well, aren't we as Christians supposed to give our life to Christ? And the answer is absolutely yes, we are. And it seems appropriate because Jesus Christ is our creator and he should be the Lord of all. And shouldn't we surrender ourselves to Christ? And the answer is yes. And didn't the apostle Paul talk about, or Jesus talk about taking up your cross and following him? And didn't Paul talk about the fact that we need to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice? And the answer to all of these questions is absolutely yes. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul wrote, for Christ's love compels us since we've reached this conclusion. If one died for all, that's a reference to Jesus. If he died for all, then all died. Paul's saying we should die to ourselves because he died for us. Following his example, we die to ourselves. And then it says he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And so I believe that Christians should surrender to Christ, but is it a requirement for salvation? And here I come back to some of the questions I raised earlier. What happens if we don't surrender everything? What happens, happens if we surrender most things but not everything? Or what happens if we surrender something and then we take it back? And I'd even ask this question, is it possible to surrender everything to Christ, to give him everything? I remember years ago, I was talking with a guy about Christ and sharing the gospel message to him. And when I came to the end, I said, do you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your savior? And he said, no. And I said, well, why not? Because he had been agreeing with me all along that Christ was the answer. And he said, well, it's because of the work I do. And I said, well, what work do you do? He says, well, I'm a private investigator. And he said, I can't become a Christian because if I do... I might have to give up my job because my job might require me to shoot somebody. That was his argument. He said, I'm not willing to give up my career to become a Christian. And I had to clarify his thinking. Is that how a person becomes a Christian? By, by giving up their career? Is that what was taught in the pages of the Bible? My observation is this, that even Christians to this day that I've known for years struggle with surrender. What Christian is there that surrendered everything to Christ? And so why do we make this a condition for salvation when we ourselves can't even do it? Now, with this terminology, surrender yourself to Christ or give your life to Christ, I see, again, these three problems I mentioned earlier. Number one, biblical terminology like faith, belief, or trust is replaced with other words such as commit, follow, or give. 
As we've talked about the first two weeks of this series, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The only requirement I find in the pages of the Bible is faith. Second, the focus is on what we do for God instead of what he did for us. God doesn't give us eternal life in exchange for surrender. I mean, if he required that of us in order to get to heaven, it'd be a worthwhile exchange, I suppose. But once again, I note the fact that the gospel on the pages of the Bible is referred to as a gift. For by grace, you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not something he gives you in exchange for something that you give to him. And then the third problem I have is that Bible verses related to discipleship are used to explain salvation. And so I want to encourage us not to use words like surrender or give your life to Christ, but rather words like faith and trust, put your faith in Christ. The third example of unbiblical terminology is that we need to follow Jesus. Over the years, I've been around a lot of people who after they made a gospel presentation, they closed their presentation with this question. Are you ready to follow Jesus? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question in terms of eternal life. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Why do I have a problem with this one? I mean, shouldn't we follow Jesus? Well, of course, the answer is yes, we should be followers of Jesus. But I think of the example of Judas Iscariot. Here was a guy that followed Jesus for three years. He sacrificed a great deal to follow Jesus, and yet he never came to a place of faith in Christ. I think of the disciples themselves, the 11 disciples who followed Jesus for three years. And yet Jesus said to them, even toward the end, he said, you you don't believe. They didn't understand. Now, I think at a certain point toward the end, they did. Some of them grabbed a hold of it. But really, all of them, I think, came to faith eventually after Jesus rose again from the dead. I think what we learn when we view that our standing with God is based on following Jesus is that we're just not very good followers. And I recognize that oftentimes following Jesus will lead to faith in Christ. This is why Jesus, I think, called his disciples. He said, follow me. And they watched him as he performed miracles. They listened to him teach. They watched him die on the cross. They watched him rise again from the dead. And eventually, then, they put their trust in Christ. And I suggest that that's the point in which they really got it. That's the point in which they were really saved or delivered from the penalty of their sin. Now, once again, with this terminology, follow Jesus, I find these three issues. Biblical terminology, which is faith, belief, or trust. That terminology is replaced with other words such, commit, such as commit, follow, or give. Second, the focus is on what we do for God instead of what he did for us. Once again, you say, well, okay, what I need to do in order to earn eternal life is to follow Jesus. And again, I think all of us would have to admit that we're not good at following. Reminds me of a story from years ago when I was in high school that a number of my friends in the neighborhood put their faith in Christ And one young man who lived in the neighborhood a couple blocks from me saw the change that took place in some of the other friends in the neighborhood, and he wanted to put his faith in Christ as well, and so he he prayed a prayer to receive Christ, to express faith in Christ. About a month after this happened, he came to me and he said, I can't do it anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I I just can't be a Christian. He said, I tried. He said, I tried. I tried giving up the drugs 
He said, I tried all these other things that I knew I shouldn't be doing. I, 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 I tried to, but it just didn't work. I just can't do it. I just can't keep up. And I had to explain to him, well, that's not how we get right with God. We put our trust in Christ. He saves us, and then his spirit helps us to change. But it's not the other way around. But oftentimes, I think people think, well, my standing with God is based on how well I follow. And again, if we're honest with each other, I think we'd have to admit we don't follow well sometimes. I've been following Christ for most of my life, and yet I'd have to admit that if my standing with God is based on how well I followed, which, by the way, I think to get to heaven would have to be perfectly, I wouldn't get there either. And then the third problem I have with this is that Bible verses related to discipleship are used to explain salvation. I brought up with me today and put on this table and knocked off a baby doll. But I want you to imagine for a moment that this doll represents a real baby. I was talking with Josh this past week about the talk and, and he mentioned this illustration. I thought it was really good that when you're talking about a baby that's being born into the world, what does the baby do in order to be born into the world? What, what, what was its part in the process? You say, well, it, it didn't do anything. You know, the parents decided to have a baby. A baby grew in the mother's womb. The baby came out. No one asked the baby about it. You know, the baby was just born. But once the baby is born, it becomes a cooperative effort, doesn't it? For the baby to grow. I mean, the parents will provide the food, the, the, the clothing and things like that, but this baby has to eat. The older the baby gets, the more responsibility that the baby takes upon himself. He becomes a, a boy, he becomes a young man, he takes responsibility on himself. He becomes an adult, a mature adult. And that's the difference between salvation and discipleship. Salvation is something God does to us. When we put our faith in Christ, we're born again, born anew. And then after we're born, we begin to grow, we begin to change, and we'll never become perfect, by the way, in this life until that day we are with Christ in eternity. The fourth and final phrase I'd like to address this morning is this, that we need to make Jesus the Lord of our life. Now, this is perhaps the most common way in which I've heard people talk about the gospel message. You need to make Jesus your Lord. And you probably wonder, what's, what's wrong with that? What could be wrong with this particular terminology? And I think some of you, by the way, might perhaps disagree with this point, and it would be a great discussion item. But I want to suggest here today that we get to heaven not by making Jesus Lord, but by recognizing that he is the Lord. Now, let me explain the difference here. That This terminology of making Jesus Lord comes from Romans 10.9, which is indeed a gospel verse. In Romans 10.9, we read, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this looks pretty straightforward. You confess that he's Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you'll have eternal life, you'll be saved, you'll be delivered from the penalty of your sins. So what could be wrong with this? Well, it comes down to the meaning of the word Lord in this verse. What does it mean? And in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the word Lord, as it appears in your Bibles, can be translated one of two ways, or it could be understood in one of two ways. Either the word Lord means master, 
meaning that he is to be master over every aspect of your life, or the word means God, that he is God. And so which one is it here when Paul says here that that we need to confess that he is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead? Well, I would argue that the word that's used there is a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. And I talked last week about the fact that that deity is so essential to the gospel message, and I'll remind you in a minute. Romans 10.9, though, Dr. Whitmer explains the verse this way. The confession is an acknowledgement that God has been incarnated in Jesus, that Jesus is God. Also essential is heart faith that God raised him from the dead, and the result is salvation. So this was a confession that you make that God was incarnated in Jesus, that he was God. And then essential to this was that he died, he was buried, and then he was raised again from the dead. And you put your trust in him, this one, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, to be your savior. But it's an emphasis on his deity. Dr. Mounts, in his commentary on Romans, agrees. He writes... What must be believed is that Jesus is Lord. This quintessential, essential affirmation is perhaps the earliest Christian confession of faith. It proclaims in the simplest possible words that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact God. The word used throughout the Old Testament documents for Yahweh over 6,000 times is here applied to Jesus. He's saying that when you see this, the Greek word behind the word Lord in your Bible, it's pointing to the Old Testament, to the 6,000 times where the name of God is mentioned, Yahweh, and it's acknowledging that Jesus Christ is God. Mounts then adds this, the implications of this are staggering. Primarily, it means that Jesus' authority is absolute, unlimited, and universal. Now, I mentioned earlier in this series why it's important that we acknowledge Jesus is God. It's essential to his ability to save you. If Jesus were not God, he would not be able to help you at all in terms of your sin problem. It was the fact that he was born into this world, the Son of God and God the Son, that he managed to live a sinful life despite his flesh and blood, And that he was able to go to a cross in our place and for our sin that he is able to save us. His deity is absolutely essential to the equation. It's why the incarnation was necessary. And so this is why Paul includes this in this proclamation. You need to confess he's Lord. That he's Yahweh of the Old Testament. That he is God. And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, The reason I struggle with this lordship terminology, you need to make him the Lord of your life, is some of the reasons we've already talked about. First of all, it's no longer a gift. If my standing with God is based on the fact, okay, you are my Lord over everything, I give you everything. It's not a gift anymore, it's an exchange. And as I said earlier, it'd be a worthy exchange, but this isn't how we get right with God. It's a gift, it's something that we receive. But second, I struggle with this because Christians that I have known who have been Christians for years and years and years still struggle with this problem of lordship. What Christian among us can say, I have finally made Jesus the Lord over everything in my life? We're not even able to do it. We struggle daily with this lordship issue. 
And yet we make this a requirement for someone that doesn't even have the Holy Spirit in them. And we say, well, you have to make him the Lord. And they're sitting there thinking, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. I don't know whether I can do that or not. The bottom line is, once again, this terminology is discipleship terminology. As Christians, we're told, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's supposed to be our Lord. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's to be our Lord. But this is not how we receive the gift of eternal life. We receive that through faith alone in Christ. Because again, we don't contribute to our spiritual birth. It's something God does. In John 1, verses 10 through 13, we read about Jesus. He was in the world And the world was created through him, through Jesus. This is, again, an affirmation of his deity. Yet, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Receiving Christ and believing in his name are the same thing. As many as received him, namely, they, they believed in his name. God gives the privilege to become children of God. And then verse 13 says, they are ones who were born not of blood or of the flesh of men or of the will of man, but of God. God is the one that brings about the new birth in our lives. It's not something we strive to attain. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we deserve. It's something that God imparts to us the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, again, words matter. And as I talked about before, I believe God is many times bigger than our words. I think sometimes we share things, people become aware of the fact that they're sinful, they realize Christ is the answer, and whatever words are used in their heart, they put their trust in Christ. And I think that's perhaps the bigger issue. But I think we need to understand with clarity exactly what the message is. And Paul summarized it clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. He said, now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel of the good news that I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You were also saved by it if you hold the message I proclaim to you unless you believed for no purpose. For I passed on to you as of most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Notice two things about it. Number one, he acknowledges they received it by faith. That's how we get right with God, for by grace you're saved through faith. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Second, Notice that Paul focuses completely when he talks about clarifying the gospel message, the focus is completely on Jesus. He said, I declare to you this message of first importance. The Messiah, the one prophesied, died and was buried and raised again from the dead and other people sought. He said, that's the heart of the message and that indeed is the heart of the message and that is the confidence that we have. And again, I reiterate that if our confidence in our standing with God is based on how well we follow him, how well we surrender, whether or not we're able to make Jesus the Lord over everything, whether we give our life to Christ completely, we will never know where we stand with God. But what if our faith is placed on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross The Son of God and God the Son who died in our place was buried and raised again from the dead 
that the payment he made for you and me was accepted by God so that whoever will put their confidence or trust in Jesus will have eternal life. Let me close with the words of this old hymn because I think it captures it well. And many of you maybe are familiar with this hymn. It goes this way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. In other words, trust what someone else might say that seems so nice. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news. I thank you that it's good news because it's the assurance we have of where we stand with you because of what Jesus did for us. I thank you for the promise you give us in John 3.16 that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That it's, it's about what you did for us, not what we do for you, and I'm so grateful for that. And because of that, Lord, then I do want to offer my life as a living sacrifice for you. Because of that, I want to sacrifice what I want for your glory for your name's sake, because then I want to commit myself to you. I want to follow you and follow you the best I can because of your kindness, because of your love for me. I want to demonstrate a tremendous love for you because of the wonderful and unconditional gift that you gave to me through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.